I mean, think about it. Angels appearing, a virgin conceiving, God coming to earth as a little baby, and a special star guiding wise men. Well, what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at this story. And for many of us, maybe there are doubts. Maybe you've come into a place like this and, and, and your doubts seem to center around not just about what Christmas is and what God provides through this time of year. Maybe there's some doubts that you're going on in your heart right now. Maybe you're on tough times. Maybe things are happening in your life that you don't understand. And it's causing tremendous doubt in your life. Well, let's look at the introduction there. For many, there have been and are doubts surrounding the Christmas story, including the characters of the story. The first doubts literally came from Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. Now today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this, this man named Zacharias. Uh, that's his Greek name. For some of you, you have a, uh, a different translation, and yours is going to say Zechariah. Uh, that's his Hebrew name. Uh, a shortened name of this would be Zachary, actually. And I know people who are named Zachary, but it's actually a form of Zacharias or, or Zachariah. So Zachariah's story is one where doubt becomes belief. So look on your outline. Doubt can be normal. It can be very normal. And, and even godly people doubt. All through scripture we find this. And of course, when it comes to doubt, let's define it. It means to be uncertain about. It means to question, to hesitate to believe, to lack certainty. And of course, the opposite of doubt is where we hope we find ourselves at some point, especially as it relates to who God is, is one of, the opposite is belief, trust, and faith. Now, we do find people all through the scriptures who doubted. Adam and Eve doubted, doubted God's word, and as a result, it cost them and us dearly. Noah, he doubted. Abraham and Sarah doubted. Isaac, Jacob, the giants of the faith all doubted at some point. And then we fast forward into the New Testament and we come across the story of Zacharias. Now, in Luke chapter 1, I want you to look at verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Now think about that. Before God, they were blameless. Before God, they were considered righteous. These were upstanding people that obviously caught the eye of God. But then it says in verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. And I want you to think about what that meant to a lady back in those days. Back in those days, many people would have looked upon a lady who had no children and was not capable of having a child as one who, who, had, uh, who had no favor with God. It was someone that they believed that was not reaping the blessings of God. So therefore, there must be something in their life that is causing this. But when we read this story, however, what do we find? That it was just a part of God's plan. The world looks at it one way. Those around her looked at it one way, but God saw it a completely different way. There was nothing wrong with this lady. She was considered righteous. She caught the eye of God. She was blameless. 
And all of a sudden, we come into her story. Look at verse 8. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, that's Zacharias, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Now, let me clarify this. You need to understand this to see the importance of why this story is there. It is estimated at this time in the first century that there were over 8,000 priests who served. There were 24 divisions of 360 priests. Uh, David started this whole arrangement of the idea of priests divided up into divisions and different things. So there were 24 divisions of 360, approximately 8,000 priests at this time. Now, over a two two one-week periods, it fell for certain priests to go to the temple, wherever they may be. They were spread all out throughout Palestine, some in the foreign lands. But what would happen is they would be called for two one-week periods to go and actually serve in the temple. This would be considered a great honor for a priest. Once they got there, there would be lots that would be cast. And certain ones were allowed to go into what is called the holy place. Now, we're not talking about the Holy of Holies. We're talking about the holy place, just right outside of the Holy of Holies. We know that the chief priest was only allowed to go into the Holy of Holies um, when it was that time of year, and only the chief priest could go in. But the problem is, uh, at this time, there is no ark. <laughs> so the presence of God is, 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 hard, is, is not really there as it relates to that. So he was able to go into the holy place. The lot fell to him. He served there. Now, you can only do this one time in your lifetime as a priest. One time. Would you say this is a special deal for Zacharias? Very special. What an honor. I mean, and some priests will go their whole life and never get to do this because a lot would never fall on them. And so all of a sudden, we have this man. Look at what it says in verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. So he's in, in the holy place. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now think about this. The angel we know, he's going to identify himself as Gabriel. The last time Gabriel showed up was 500 years before this to the prophet Daniel. Now think about that. 500 years later, there's Gabriel again. And he's talking to this man named Zacharias. And so then the angel of the Lord appeared standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So the the angel visited him in the holy place of the temple. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Now, let me just say this. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. It's been 400 years since God's people have heard from God. 400 years. Think about that. Almost twice the age of America. It's been 400 years since they've heard from God. And all of a sudden, the angel now has chosen to show up when Zacharias is in the temple, in the holy place. And he's there. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Do you know what Zacharias, do you know what that name literally means? God remembered. God remembered. That's what his name means. And so it says you're going to have a child. Your wife is, is, is going to carry a child, and, and his name is going to be John. And verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness, and, make, and many will rejoice at his birth. 
For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And of course, this is in reference to the whole Nazarite vow that he was, he was to take or would live his life as. Verse 16, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people. Now, what's interesting, if you look at this, it's, it's so amazing to see how God's word comes together. But the last words of the Old Testament, guess what? Guess what those words were? What I just read. Elijah, the power of Elijah, the one who, who's going to come like Elijah. He's going to come in. He's going to be bold. Guess who that person's going to become? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. And so therefore, all these things, and it says, look at what it says, uh, last part of verse 17, to make people, to, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is well advanced in age. You know what we're reading there? We're reading the doubts of Zacharias. Now think about it. He was a priest. He knew the word of God. He was a man that the, uh, God himself said was righteous. He was a man that God was, was impressed with, so to speak. He was blameless before men. And, and all of a sudden, he's standing in the most holy place in the world at that time. And he's standing there, and, and this angel from heaven appears, and he still has doubts. You wouldn't expect that in this situation. That's exactly what we see. But then there's another who doubted in Scripture. And we know this guy pretty well. His name's Thomas. I want you to turn to John chapter 20. Hold your place where you are. We're coming back to Zacharias. I want you to look at John chapter 20. Now, we know Thomas as what? Doubting Thomas. Thomas's doubt came after the death of Jesus. But now he's resurrected. And, and, and be honest with you, John, I mean, excuse me, Thomas is really having a struggle because he's heard other people have seen Jesus after his death. And he's struggling with this. So in John chapter 20, look at verse 24. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands uh, the prints of nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the door being sh shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. He didn't even come through the door. He just appeared. Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And what happened with Thomas? He was convinced. Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? He came to that conclusion. Another who doubted John, uh, doubted a God was, was John the Baptist himself. Not only Zacharias did he doubt, but John the Baptist himself. Do you remember his story? Bless his heart, he was the one to prepare the way of the Lord. And all of a sudden, we fast forward in his life. It's apparent he's completed his mission of preparing the way for the Lord. The Lord is out healing and teaching among the people. And all of a sudden, we hear that John the Baptist has been arrested. He's literally getting ready to be executed. The Bible even tells us he'll be beheaded. 
And all of a sudden, just before the execution, John sent some of his disciples and said, go to Jesus and ask him this question. Jesus, are you the one or should we wait for another? Now, don't you think that John all his life knew who Jesus was? He knew. But there was something that came his way that caused him to doubt. Could it have been despair? Could it have been discouragement? I mean, think about the man. He was bold everywhere he went. People were blown away by his boldness and how he stand up to the religious. But there came that moment in his life where he doubted. And then in, chapter, in Luke chapter 7, verse 28, Jesus said, listen to what he said about John. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Again, someone with great credentials, not only just credentials, but credentials from heaven. And he's saying there's none greater born of women. And so all of a sudden we see doubts. Doubt seems to be a part of the human experience, especially when we fall on tough times, especially when we become discouraged, when we become despaired. And we look around and we see no hope. You see, that's where I believe John eventually got to. Zacharias, his doubts were a whole different thing. It was one of them things where he was asked to believe in the supernatural. But John was asked to believe in the Savior himself. And yet there was that moment of doubt. You see, we tend to doubt when we are asked to believe something out of the ordinary. Abraham had that happen to him. Do you remember? Abraham, you're going to have a child. Really? <laughs> Do you know how old I am, God? <laughs> Uh, oh, yeah, by the way, it's going to be through Sarah. Do you know how old she is? I mean, it's there. Zacharias faced the same thing. How about this? We doubt when we are faced with a difficult situation. That's the story of Jacob. When we are faced with our own fear, that's the story of Moses and the story of Joshua. When we are hurt, we tend to doubt. That's the story of Job. When we are discouraged and in despair, that's the story of John the Baptist. You see, doubt can be both beneficial and destructive and can become very costly, which leads us to the next point. And it's this. Look on your outline. De doubt can be beneficial. Now, there are two types of doubts. There's one that is honest and there's one that's dishonest. And the first doubt, look on your outline, is doubts of, of conscience. Doubts of conscience. And it says this. I can honestly say I doubt but I am willing to examine the evidence to see if it's true. Think about what Proverbs says in Proverbs chapter 14. It says, a simple man believes anything, but a prudent man gives thought to his steps. There are those of us that there may be doubt. And basically doubt can lead to something very beneficial. I mean, I look at my own experience. I remember um, being there in Wilmington and, and God calling me into ministry. I was so certain of that. So I went to my pastor. I said, Pastor, I said, what do I do? What, what's the next step? And uh, I think you know my story. He said, well, you need to get an education. I said, really? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and he said, uh, I went to Gardner-Webb University. He said uh, that, that, that some of the professors were there when I was there, are still there. So I came up here, moved my way, got, made my way here. We started attending Gardner-Webb. And I'll be honest with you, I had a very difficult time. There were some things that were said in some of the classes that really shook my faith. There were things that were presented that, that I didn't see as biblical. 
There are some struggles that I struggled with, and I'll be honest with you, it shook my faith. It, it caused many doubts to occur within me, and some of y'all were around there in those days because I would go and talk to you about some of this stuff, and it was creating all kinds of havoc in my own life, and it was almost like my faith. Doubts were occurring everywhere. But you know something? God continued to prove himself. God continued to show me the way. Now I look back on that time. And even though it was very difficult, in some ways I wouldn't trade it for anything because I believe what it caused me to do was to examine what I believed, examine my faith in such a way that could lead to a stronger faith, that doubt could become belief, not because of something I was just told, but something I experienced and something that I grappled with, I worked through. But my doubts were based on doubts of conscience, of the conscience. Now, someone has said this. He who has never doubted has never thought. <laughs> there are times in which we need to doubt in order to be able to discern between fact and fiction. This kind of doubt is not cynicism or stubborn unbelief, but looks for more evidence. Thomas was looking for it. John the Baptist was crying out for it. Doubt, listen, can be beneficial if it motivates us to investigate, which then can result in a stronger faith. But then there's another type of doubt, doubts of convenience. And I'm afraid that's where many people find themselves, especially in the world in which we live. Look at what this doubt says. It says, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's more convenient not to believe. So don't confuse me with evidence. Y'all, that's where a lot of people's doubts are grounded. And we're looking at a world that's looking at it from that whole perspective. I mean, think about the message of the gospel. Think about the fact that God extended his love to this world. For God so loved the world, they do what? Sin is only begotten son. That whosoever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Think about what that message is saying. And yet we have a world that has a literal hatred for that message. But it's an act of love that reaches out. And you know what's, what's grounded in it? Those who believe it's just more convenient not to believe in it. And that's where many find themselves. Which leads us to our next point. Look on your outline. Doubt can be destru destructive. Number one, it steals our joy. It can steal our joy. Go back to Luke chapter 1. We're back to the story of Zacharias. Verse 19. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings, to bring you this good news. But behold, basically, because you didn't believe, you will be mute, meaning deaf, and not able to speak until the days these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. Look at verse 21. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple, namely the holy place. He went in. There was time and time again. I want you to think about the people, the climate of the people there in that time. 400 years since it's been since they've heard a word from God. This man goes into the holy place. And he's not just in there burning the incense, doing what scripture tells him to do. He's in there and he stays. He lingers. And the people are thinking, could it be that he's getting a word from God? A word that maybe we haven't heard in 400 years? Can you imagine the optimism? Can you imagine the expectation is there awaiting? Verse 22, but when he came out, he could not speak to them. 
And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. They said, you know something? There's something that happened here. For he beckoned to them and remained speechless. You know what that literally says? He wanted so much to tell them what he received, but he wasn't able to. He wasn't able to. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Can you imagine going through what he went through? Seeing the grandeur of the angel that came before him, hearing the message that would be there, and all of a sudden, he couldn't tell anyone about it. Anyone about it. And they were hanging. They would have hung on every word when he walked out of there. They would have said, is there a message from God? We haven't heard from him in 400 years. Is there something we need to know? He walked out. He couldn't even share it with them. You think your joy would be lost if you couldn't share it with them? <laughs> no joy. The greatest moment, the greatest moment of joy of a priest's life is to be able to come out of the holy place with a word from God. He got it, but he couldn't deliver it. Next, doubt. It opens our heart to temptation. When we doubt, we are, we're literally opening our heart. How about Abraham? Abraham, you're going to have a child. Really? With Sarah? Again, God, do you know how old she is? Do you know how old I am? Sarah had a hard time with that. Do you remember? She became very manipulative. And as a result, had the handmaiden come in, who was definitely in those years in which she could have conceived easily. And all of a sudden, guess what? They doubted. And they messed up the plan of God. Did it cost greatly? Oh, yeah. Another whole group of people were born as a result of that. And all of a sudden, you had all this. And, and the Bible says, and Abraham heeded the voice of Sarah. The problem was he didn't heed the voice of God. That was the problem. How about Eve? You remember Eve's story? Uh, she doubted. The enemy, how did, what did he do? What was, his, what was his way of getting her to sin, to fall to temptation, to cause her to doubt the very words of God? And she was looking. Now, listen, for Eve, it was a doubt of convenience. You know how we know that? Because of the verse here on the screen. Look at what it says. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise... Now think about it. She's built this up. That didn't just happen from just walking by the tree one day. It probably happened over and over again. And finally, I mean, she just built all this up. Man, just give me one bite. Man, just let me experience this. And she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. He watched the whole thing play out. He stood right there and watched it play out. And then he partook. Now think about it. It all centered around doubt. Next, doubt. It destroys our witness. If you were to go study Peter's life, you will see he was very outspoken. Have you ever studied Peter's life? You, you, can, you can feel really good about yourself when you study Peter's life. And then you see how God used him mightily in the latter days of his life. Because he, he, I mean, he said things that we wish we could say. And he, he, he would hold up the Lord and say, hey, Lord, have you considered this or have you thought of this or what do you mean by that? He was one of those kind of guys. And yet Peter, you know something, the strength that he had, he goes and Jesus has just been arrested. 
Just before that, he is willing to take on the whole temple guard to, to keep Jesus from being arrested. And he pulled his sword. You remember he cut off the soldier's ear? But moments later, he began to doubt. You know why? Because Jesus said, no, this is not the way we're going to handle this. And he put the ear back on. How many of you have been grateful for Jesus to be there at that moment? Your ear's gone. like, I could use the ear. He puts it back on. And then all of a sudden, Peter's filled with doubt. Stands in the courtyard there, followed Jesus to where he was. I mean, he is at least going to be there with him. And all of a sudden, this young girl comes out and says, Hey, aren't you associated with the guy they just took in that they're wanting to kill? What did Peter say? I don't even know the man. I don't know the man. So we see it <clears throat> destroys our witness. Doubt, it nullifies our prayers nullifies our prayers. I want you to hold your place here and turn to James chapter 1. It's near the back. Go ahead and go back there. And as you turn, hold your place to where you are because we're coming back. Now, this James who wrote this epistle, this letter, now I want you to get this straight in your head before we read what we're going to read. He was a half-brother of Jesus. In all likelihood, he grew up in the same home Jesus grew up in. Wouldn't it be cool to have a ringside seat to watch Jesus grow up. This is what was given him. This was the privilege that was given him. But you know something about this, James? He didn't even believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. This is someone who lived in the same house, probably heard him pray at times, uh, heard of the miracles, heard of all the things. But how many of you know anything about sibling rivalry? Mary saying, James. Why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I'm starting to, I'm starting to really wonder, and, and I've seen sibling rivalry play out in people's lives, and, and, and I'm starting to wonder, what caused him not to believe who Jesus was? He saw everything. But could that, have, could that have come in there maybe just a little? But you know something? After his resurrection, he became a believer. You know what? I look at James's life, and I think, he is the true expert on doubt. Wouldn't you agree? He saw it play out. He had a ringside seat, and yet he still doubted. He's the expert of doubt. I'm convinced of that. But look what he says now that he's a believer. James chapter 1, look at verse 2. He says, my brother, and we, we discussed this verse the last two weeks, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete and lack nothing. That would include doubt. And then if, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. If you're still dealing with doubt, those things that would cause you not to believe in the things of God, he will give to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask how? In faith. Don't say in doubt. In faith, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not the man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. If he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He doesn't know what to believe. You know what? Just knowing James' story, he's telling us his experience. He's telling us his experience with doubt. And all of a sudden, he's on the right side of it. Next, doubt. It excuses our sin. Or it was one way we attempt to excuse our sin. 
I want you to think about what Jesus said. In John chapter 3, we, we came across John 3.16. We've already quoted that. But look at John 3.17. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe <clears throat> is condemned already. Those who are doubt, condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten of the Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light. And does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. You see, this is, a, this is a picture of what you would call doubts of convenience. If we are completely honest, listen, <clears throat> many of our doubts are rooted in a desire for sin and disobedience. Think about that. And that's where we get in trouble. If we can doubt it enough, then we can come away and... Believe what we want to about what we want to get into. Be careful with this. It can be very costly. It can even affect your eternity. Next, doubt can be conquered. I want you to think about this. What in your life has caused you to doubt God and possibly even his existence? Have you ever been there? Some of you may have a testimony this morning saying, you know something? I've been there. But I came out on the other side, and I know him more than I've ever known him. And I've experienced him more than I've ever experienced him. But you know something? I went through those doubts. I really wondered. I really wondered if he was really who he says he was, if he was going to come through. There's, but yet there may be somebody here today that's saying, you know something? I'm doubting right now because there's something that I'm just really struggling with. And there's something in my life <clears throat> that is causing me to doubt even if God even cares or if he even exists. And then maybe some of you are sitting here today and maybe we caught you just in time and your doubt is built on convenience and you want to go out here and kind of basically call your own shots and live like you want to. And if somehow you can doubt there's a God, if somehow you can doubt that you're ever going to be accountable to anyone with, for this life, if you can just have a doubt about that, that maybe it can open a whole door of new adventure in the way of sin. And that's pretty convenient to be able to go that way. Maybe that's your story this morning. But maybe some of you are just saying, you know something? It has nothing to do with that. I want to believe God cares. I want to know that he exists. I want it more than anything. But I'm hurting right now. I don't know where to turn. Everything I've read, it talks about all these people. And I look around and people everywhere I look seem to be blessed. And I'm kind of left out of that. Maybe you can identify with Elizabeth. She lived to be an old woman. And everybody in her community thought, well, I wonder what she did in her life to cause her not to be able to have a child. And then all of a sudden, God proved them wrong. But you know something? It was later in life before it all came together. Before it all came out in the light. Sometimes it doesn't happen overnight. But how can we deal with our, our hurt? How do we deal with our doubt? Have you ever been asked to believe in something that's out of the ordinary? If you're dealing with doubt, here's a way to move through it. Number one, look on your outline. Examine the evidence. Examine the evidence. Look at it. Don't look at it 
dishonestly as, as a doubt of convenience, but look at it as a doubt of, of conscience. And say, God, I don't know what you're up to. <clears throat> I want to know. Lord, show up. You ever heard of the author Lee Strubel? Lee Strubel was an uh, attorney who set out to basically try to figure out if, if the resurrection really happened. Did, 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 was there ever really a man named Jesus who, who lived, who died, and came back to life? And he spent, he, he, there's a book called The Case for Christ, <clears throat> and he deals with all our doubts. And, and for many of us, they're tired, trying to take an intellectual approach to it or, or trying to, 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 to come to grips with all that. He answers a lot of questions you may have in his book. But he was an attorney, and he believed, he honestly believed when he started the research that at the end, he was going to disprove the resurrection. But you know what happened? He came to understand that the resurrection did happen. There was just too much evidence that surrounded it. And his doubt became belief, and he became a believer. The Bible says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and how? And hearing how? By the word of God. Something you can build belief on. That's what it's talking about. So let's go back to Luke chapter 1. Zacharias' story. Look at verse 24. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived... And she hid herself for five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. You see, she's calling it out. She's saying, yes, yeah, so many people have looked down on me because I've never been able to have a child. Have you ever wondered why she hid herself for five months? Some commentators believe that maybe she was ashamed of the old woman having a baby and, and she was ashamed of that or whatever. But most people say this. I think there's something to this, that, that maybe there was a lot of pride in her, that she was going to go out there and strut around the fact that she was conceived a child and she was going to show them and that maybe that pride is not something she knew would demonstrate what God was up to. Some people, commentators believe that she didn't want to go out and mess up what God was doing in the womb, that she just stayed away from everyone. I think they're all valid situations. But anyway, she hid herself for five months, and, and she said, uh, verse 25, thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on, upon me to take away my reproach among the people. Now, maybe they'll quit talking about me. Verse 57, look at verse 57. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord has shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. And would you call those good friends? Oh yeah, I'm sure there were some that didn't rejoice with her. I'm sure there were those who ran her in the ground and said, well, she'll, she's definitely, there's something in that woman's life. She just, she just obeyed God. There's a sin sitting in there somewhere. But there were some that did rejoice with her. You see, God does exactly what he will do. When doubt arises, examine the evidence next, decide to obey God. Because he's going to come through. He's going to reveal himself. Decide to believe the word of God. Look at Luke 1. Look at verse 59. So it was <clears throat> on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. So were those who were sitting there who's, who assumed, that's what just talking about, they assumed he would have a version of Zacharias in the name or some other relative. But look what happened. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, 
There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father what he would call, have him called. So they, they quit looking at the woman. He said, well, what do you think, Zacharias? And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying, his name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately, his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke, praising God. Now think about that. When we decide to believe it will lead us to a place of worship. It will allow us to see that there is a bigger picture, that God does want to take our doubts and turn them into belief. But then we come to Luke 67. 167, it says, Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying... Now here's what's interesting about this. This is, this is a speech, or this is something that should have been said nine months ago. Have you ever thought about that? This is, what they, this is what the angel and God wanted him to leave the, the holy place that day to say. Nine months later, can you imagine he's finally able to say it? And here it is. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That's the whole Messiah talk. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, we have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remissions of their sins and through the tender mercy of our God, which is the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Verse 80, so the child grew, that's John the Baptist, and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel, until the day of the revealing, until the day in which God just took a hold of his heart and took a hold of his voice, and he began proclaiming, preparing the way for the Messiah, which is what we're celebrating this season, the Messiah. So here's the application. One can miss God's best by doubting him and his word. And here's the question. What are your doubts costing you? What are they costing you? Could it be that the doubts that you have in your own heart, could those same doubts be passed to your children or your grandchildren? Most definitely. A lot of our children and grandchildren receive their perspectives from those closest to them. And we need to be careful what we're representing to them. And we need to be careful the doubts that we put out there. But here's one last story as we close. There was a man who came to Jesus out of desperation. And basically Jesus was there and he was healing people. And <clears throat> the man walks up and says, can you do anything for my son? And so he comes up and, and Jesus said this to him. If you can believe all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately. The father of the child cried out and said with tears. And this may be where some of you are today. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I believe. I want to believe with everything in me. But Lord, help me with my doubts. 
Maybe that's where you are today. And as we enter into this Christmas season and we enter into this place where God wants to do mighty things in our lives, have we ever considered that our doubts may be keeping us from, from being all that God's called us to be, to understand who he is fully? The way we increase our faith, listen, is to act on the faith we have. That's how we, we got to act on the faith we have. That's a problem for many people. Then as we respond with faith, we ha- with the faith we have, God then gives us a gift of increased faith. I've seen this play out in my own life. Moving from doubt to faith is a process. I came across a quote this week that reflects the words that this father said. And he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Here, here's what that could be. Faith is going to the edge of the light you have of the faith you have and taking one more step. Taking one more step. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm not gonna step off stage or anything, but but that's what it is. That's what it looks like. Zacharias eventually turned from doubt to believe and as a result, he was blessed. Listen, in a supernatural way, Can you imagine being the father of the one who was going to come to this earth and be the one that would help prepare the way? And so here's my question to you this morning. Where are your doubts rooted in? Where's it coming from? I want to ask you to stand to your feet if you would. Put your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Let's pray. Father, we just come to you right now. And Lord, we know that there's so much that surrounds this time of year. We are asked to believe things that are out of the ordinary. Angels showing up all over the place. A a virgin about to have a child. Men who are led by a star to find a a small king. Just the stories go on and on. A choir of angels singing to shepherds. And for many of us, maybe we have a hard time getting our minds around that whole story. But Lord, help us to believe that's where it all started. That's where the salvation began. That's where the one that was crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist, was pointing us to the Messiah, to the Savior who would be born. Who was not just a man. He wasn't a man. He was the God-man. He was born of man, but he was born of, of the Spirit, born of deity. But not only that, we find that he was not only that. He, he was the Word of God. He was the exact representation And he is the one in which our salvation comes through. But Father, there's so many of us possibly in this room who are just doubting. And we doubt and we doubt. And sometimes, maybe there's people in here, we're doubting for convenience because we want to live life our own way. We want to call the shots. We don't want to believe that there's someone we're going to be accountable to at the end of all this. But then there may be those here today. It's doubts of conscience. They want to believe. They're just like that father. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help my doubts. Give me something. Lord, I just pray that you'll work in our lives here today. If there's someone here who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, they've never even began to take the first step towards the belief. I pray today will be the day that they take that step and they'll come forward and they'll talk to someone about that. Father, if there's someone here that may be a Christian, been a Christian for a long time, but there's that one thing that's always hung up in, in, in their mind and in their heart. And they're trying to be honest about it. But they don't know what to do with it. Lord, just help them to take one more step towards faith. Give them that. Show them that. Father, have your way in this invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you?